Fit Profile. You're listening to Premier Christian Radio. Well, hello and welcome to The Profile podcast, usually broadcast on Premier Christian Radio, as well as coming to you in podcast format. But it's a little bit different this week because programming on Premier Christian Radio has been paused for a special appeal week. If you want to support the ministry of Premier, you can do that. You can go to premierchristianradio.com. Dot com and you can donate there. Another great way, though, of supporting what we're doing here at Premier is actually by taking advantage of our special half-price subscription deal to Premier Christianity magazine. That's the UK's leading Christian magazine, and it's also the magazine that sponsors this podcast and this radio show, The Profile, where we sit down with a different person every week. So Premier Christianity magazine half-price offer. That means you get 12 print issues of the UK's leading Christian magazine direct to your door every single month and for your first year subscription you can now get that for less than 20 pounds it's a really great offer not only that but if you subscribe right now we'll even put you into a prize draw to win 200 pounds worth of new christian books if you want to take advantage of this please go ahead now to premierchristianity.com forward slash subscribe and you'll see all the details there this is a limited offer so you need to hurry if you want to take advantage of it 12 issues of the uk's leading christian magazine for less than 20 pounds premierchristianity.com is the link that you need but now on this special podcast only edition of the show we've dug back into the archives to bring you an interview that justin briley did with baroness caroline cox in 2014 if you're not familiar with baroness caroline cox she's an incredibly inspiring lady who has long fought for the rights of persecuted Christians and other minorities around the world. Um, So do enjoy this fantastic interview that Justin Briley has done with Baroness Caroline Cox. Well, good afternoon and welcome along to the Profile interview here on Premier Christian Radio. I'm Justin Briley and Baroness Caroline Cox is my guest today. She's often described as a voice for the voiceless and we're going to be hearing all about her work in the UK and abroad, uh, looking out for those who are persecuted, those who are on the margins, and uh, what a long history she has in respect of that. We're going to be hearing about both the work she's done for Christian Solidarity Worldwide and most recently for Heart. She's the founder and CEO of that organisation. And so today on The Profile, we investigate the life, faith and ministry of Caroline. Caroline, thank you for joining me on the programme today. It's a great pleasure and great privilege. Uh, it's a privilege to have you. And we really want to go back to the beginning, first of all. Uh, tell me about life growing up. Um, were you born into a, a Christian environment? When you get to my age, the beginning is a long time ago. <laughs> um, yes, I was born into a Christian family, Anglican family. I was confirmed at the age of 11. And to this day, I remember the confirmation text our bishop gave us, which is Joshua one nine. Have I not commanded you, be strong and of good courage? Be not afraid, neither be thou dismayed. For I, the Lord your God, am with you wherever you go. And I have to confess I am quite often afraid and I am quite often (laughs) dismayed. But I do have to remind myself that is a command. You say you're quite often afraid. You strike me as almost fearless when I look at the exploits, the places you've been, the things you've done. But you, you actually say you, you do actually feel afraid. Oh, very much so. Um, we'll be talking a little bit about our work for the persecuted church. And very often we do go into conflict zones and dangerous areas. 
to be with our brothers and sisters on the front lines of faith and freedom. Yeah, and I get scared stiff. But I love that phrase, which um, describes, and talking about fear, is um, that courage is fear that has said its prayers. <laughs> Otherwise, you've got to go beyond your frontier of fear, and then you meet the most wonderful people, and what a privilege it is to be there. So growing up, you obviously grew up within that Anglican tradition. Was there a point at which you would say that it came alive for you, or was it just something you naturally grew into through your teenage years? I think I naturally grew into it. I mean, I do remember some points of particular prayer and some points of particular commitment. There's also a lot of times one's faith has been challenged too. So it's an evolutionary process. But what a privilege. You were interested primarily to start with in, in nursing, I think. That's where your career began. What drew you into that? Um, I think uh, it was a genuine calling. If ever I have to introduce myself, I do so very briefly. And really it sums it all up. Yes, indeed. I would say I'm a nurse and a social scientist by intention and a baroness by astonishment. <laughs> and I have to emphasise that really it was God's sense of humour. I wasn't into politics, don't much like politics, and I was so much not in that world that I was actually the first baroness I'd ever met. I never met one before. <laughs> and you wake up one morning and you find a baroness looking at yourself out of the bathroom mirror, and it's quite a shock. And then you say to the good Lord, what a privilege. What an amazing responsibility to be able to speak in one of the houses of the British Parliament. How can I use this opportunity? And I think it was then the idea really came to me that being able to speak in the British Parliament is a wonderful place to be a voice for the voiceless, to speak for those who cannot speak for themselves. And when that's that how life's developed. When that opportunity arose to, to, to be involved in politics, what, what would you say was helpful about your background in nursing that you brought to, to the party in that sense? Well, nursing is a wonderful profession. I never, ever regret having qualified as a nurse. Um, you're with people uh, in their most vulnerable moments, from birth until death. There are many variations on the varieties of care, which one gets, or in my day, you certainly got in your generic nurse training, uh, obviously from the care of the newborn uh, through to the care of the elderly, the care of the dying, patients with mental health needs, um, the elderly, and I love the definition of nursing, once offered by Professor Alistair McGrath in his book on Moderated Love, A Theology of Professional Care. He calls nursing skilled companionship. Mm. You're with people uh, throughout their most vulnerable times. Um, obviously, other professions are crucial, but they come and go. Nurses are with people 24 hours around the clock or in home or in the community. Mm. And you can bring your skills to help them as they go through their journey either through to health or to death, but you're with them and their families, their loved ones, in those vulnerable times. And what a, what a great mm -hmm. privilege that is. So what was the process that led you to, as it were, move on uh, from that very practical aspect of care um, to a more theoretical application, looking at the social sciences in academia and so on? Well, after I qualified, I married, and then I worked for a while as a staff nurse at Edgware General Hospital. Then I had what I always say is the best nursing education anyone can ever have, which was six months as a patient with TB of the kidney 
And I'd been a much nicer nurse if I had that experience, <laughs> but I'd never touched a patient. I knew what it was like to be on the receiving end, yes. but that knocked me out of clinical nursing. Right. And it was then I uh, did my degrees in social sciences as a part-time evening student. By then we had young children, so I would be sitting in the dining room with a carry cot on the table <laughs> and doing my statistics or my essays on philosophy or psychology, um, the carry cot. And I did my degrees that way, which is a wonderful way of combining motherhood uh, with continuing study. I loved it. And then I went into the academic world. That fitted much better with family life and commitments. Hmm. And and it was the academic world that, that led on to you being noticed and, and so on for a political role eventually. I think it was Margaret Thatcher who mm. gave you your baronessy. I don't know if that's the correct term, <laughs> but, but do you want to tell us yeah. what happened? Well, my first second teaching job in the academic world, I found myself at the then Polytechnic of North London as head of the Department of Sociology. And it was quite a culture shock. Mm. I was the most naive person politically who ever entered that college. I found myself heading a department of 20 academic staff, 16 of whom are Communist Party or further left. <laughs> I'm talking about the 1970s sure. now. And this was hard-line Marxism-Leninism. Mm. And their definition of higher education was not mine. Mine is freedom to pursue the truth, wherever that will take you. It might include uh, theoretical studies of Marxism-Leninism. Freedom to, to pursue the truth, but within the canons of academic rigor. Mm. Um, what was going on around me was hard-line indoctrination, I mean, physical violence, regular violent occupations, intimidation, academic blackmail. Students would come in floods of tears. What do I do? Do I write the results of my research mm. uh, or do I write the ideologically correct answer? If I do the former, they'll fail my exams. And it was a rough, tough nine years. And throughout that nine years, I saw what it did to students. I saw the academic blackmail. I saw the anguish they went through. I saw the physiognomy of hatred. I saw the violence. I went through it. Mm. And for me, that was the antithesis of what I, as a Christian, should stand for. As a Christian, we should stand for pursuit of truth and love. What was going on around me was real hatred and indoctrination. And so I fought it. Fought it for nine years. Eventually wrote a book about it with two colleagues, not from the sociology department. And I thought it was going to be the end of me. Quite a startling title to that book, wasn't oh, it? It was uncompromising. It was The, the Rape, Rape of, of Reason, reason. <laughs> The Corruption of the Polytechnic of North London. And the cover had a picture of one of the violent demonstrations, real violence. And um, I was quite scared to go back and face the music. But the lifeline was the day before the book was due to be published... I received a phone call from Bernard Levin, who in those days uh, had three op-ed articles a week in the Times. I never met him. He said, I've just read a book. I think it's the most important book for the future of democracy. I've read for the last 10 years. I'm going to cover it in tomorrow's Times. A brilliant article. Mm. The title, In All Its Brutality, The Making of an Intellectual Concentration Camp. And at the end, he said, it's such an important book. I'm going to devote my remaining two articles this week talking about it yeah. so he gave us a trilogy that got me known i think that's why i was put into that's... the house of lords as a freedom fighter right um and when it came to the hostility in a sense that you were encountering in that academic environment what did your christian faith bring to that would you say well i was terrified you asked about fear i used to dread going to work every morning sometimes there was physical violence of violent occupations and violent picket lines but always um I knew I was vulnerable because those who didn't like what I stood for wanted to discredit me. 
And if they discredited me, they discredited what I stood for. Therefore, I always had to be ahead of the game academically, intellectually, mm. personally, and with integrity, and was under constant attack. So I was really scared, but I felt, I think, a little bit like Martin Luther. Here stand I, I can do no other. I couldn't do any other. I had to be there for the sake of the students, for the sake of truth. Mm. And every year, students would come and say, thank you for being here. We knew there was more to higher education than what everyone else was telling us. Well, you strike me as an incredibly determined, um, sort of forthright uh, woman who's, who's prepared to take on authority. In that sense, perhaps not dissimilar to, to Margaret Thatcher, who was obviously the, the woman in power at the time you went into the Lords. Uh, did you meet her? Did you sort of have many opportunities to talk to her? Not many, but I, I did meet her when she offered me the peerage, and I will always respect her. When she offered me that opportunity to have a seat in the House of Lords, she said with a twinkle, um, I hope you might support us on education, because she knew where I stood. Then she said, I know you don't always agree with us on health, because at that time the Conservative Party was thinking perhaps they're going more down the American model, mm-hmm. and I was passionately supporter. I still am, of the National Health Service. I demonstrate on behalf of the National Health Service. But then she came up with a very important phrase. You have always got freedom to speak and vote according to conscience. She did not ask for unconditional loyalty. Mm. She respected people who would challenge and oppose her. Now, I wish that applied to all prime ministers since then. (laughs) Well, in any case, this was your entry into the House of Lords. Um, Why? What led you so quickly to become a voice for persecuted minorities around the world. That quickly, I think, became what you were known for, what you advocated for in the House of Lords. What what sparked that? One of the very first messages to come to me when I got this strange title, now we're talking about the early 1980s, uh, was from a Polish community here in the UK. People may remember the 1980s as a time when Poland was going through a tough, tough time with martial law. Still part of the Soviet bloc at that time. Still part of the Soviet bloc. And Lech Walesa was a famous solidarity leader. And he started an opposition movement, which was the the Soviet bloc uh, tried to clamp down. Mm. They declared military rule uh, on Poland. Lech Walesa realized it was going to be tough. He sent out an SOS for help. And Medical Aid for Poland Fund was formed in Britain. As a response, they asked me if I'd be a patron. That was the first that came my way with Baroness. I said I'd be honoured. But I think the seeds were sown, what I now believe in. I said only on the condition I can travel to Poland as appropriate on the trucks. For two reasons. One is to make sure the aid gets through, not siphoned off by communist apparatchiks. And secondly, to to come back and say I've been, I've seen, this is how it really is. So I found myself living a life of a trucker for a week at a time. We always went with professional truck drivers, but there were no hotels or motors. You lived on the truck with your truck driver. And I saw the suffering in Poland. I mean, the huge queues, yeah. nothing in the shops, nothing in the clinics or hospitals. People were dying at a young age, infant mortality rate rocketing, life expectancy plummeting, people dying in queues. And I always came back humbled by the courage, the faith, the dignity, the humour, the generosity of Polish people. Mm. I came back humbled and receiving more than I could ever give. And that's when the seeds were born of going to people trapped behind the closed borders. And it meant so much to them that one did actually go. 
I can imagine that it's not just the fact that obviously you get a first-hand experience of what's actually happening, but there's something about going to people that gives them hope as well. Oh, it's prices. One always feels so inadequate. You feel what you have to offer is so little. But they say again and again, whether it was in Poland or whether it was in Russia or later in Burma, Sudan, other places we're working, they say thank you for coming. You know, it wouldn't matter really if you didn't bring anything. The fact you're here, the fact we know we're not forgotten, mm. makes all the difference. Yeah. And they put it rather nicely in Poland. If you come once, we know you care. If you come twice, we know you love us. And then, of course, the more you go, the more they do feel cherished yeah. and not forgotten. Yeah. I mean, there you were, rattling along on an aid truck to Poland, um, a baroness. <laughs> what was your husband making of all this? You, you married him in, I think, 1959, mm-hmm. um, Dr. Murray Newell. What did he make of this sudden, you know, go-getting uh, international aid humanitarian envoy sort of role you were you were he was very supportive i mean he had his own professional life and we always supported each other very strongly but i think he uh, would travel quite a lot and he was very supportive for my right uh, the, you know, the kids were grown up by then mm. um so we used to have regular uh, times when we would meet down at our home in dorset and we called them the golden weekends <laughs> because we'd have so much to share mm. from our respective professional endeavours and, mm. and initiatives and sometimes adventures. Goodness. Um, so what happened then? Poland mm. was where it all started and, and you were asked to go and to, to, to help in that situation and to represent them in, in government. Um, where were you next, as it were, called to? What was the next place that asked for your help? The next place where we were involved was in Russia and we were asked to go to Russia uh, in the early days uh, to help arrange human rights conferences and what was still in the Soviet Union. So that was quite a challenging thing to do. But while we were there, we were approached by people inside Russia who really cared passionately about what happened to orphaned and abandoned children in the Soviet Union. And they tended to be institutionalised. <clears throat> they were often given a false label of oligophrenia or little brain. They were denied an education so they couldn't get jobs, so they became the cannon fodder for the Soviet factory system, and those orphanages were hellholes. Did you see these orphanages? Oh, yes, we visited them, and then uh, one of the deputies in what was still Leningrad asked if we could help, so to cut a long story very short, we took back a team of researchers, a professional education clinical psychologist, a medic, myself as a nurse and a social scientist, cameraman. We did systematic research in Leningrad and Moscow, and we produced a film... And we went back and we published the report which I wrote. And I wept when I wrote that report. I used to write it late at night. I called it Trajectories of Despair. It's what these kids were doomed to. Mm. And we went back to Russia to publish the Russian language edition, expecting flack. No one likes criticism. But instead, it was warmly received by the directors of the orphanages who said, thank you. We knew what we were doing was wrong. You've given us the chance to release these children, to give them hope, to give them a future, give them education. But then the real uh, shock, a message, phone call from the Kremlin, Russian Federation, it was now Russian Federation, Minister of Education, thank you for your research. It's absolutely accurate. Here was a bombshell. Will you help us change the whole childcare system Goodness for the whole me. of Russia, <laughs> away from putting kids into orphanages to developing foster family care? Moscow City Government, phone call from them. Thank you for your research. If we give you the building, will you help us set up the first model for foster family care in Russia? And then all the credit goes to our partners, 
It always does. They're the heroes and heroines. They developed a twin track program, changing law, changing policy, developing a really good foster family care program that's spread out through mm. over half the regions of Russia. Yeah, a, a extraordinary story, and just goes to show that <clears throat> what a difference can be made when people actually go to places, look at what's happening, a report back, and as you say, then then other people are able to carry the work forward. In that sense, you've always been someone who's been there to highlight these issues, um, even if you can't obviously always be there implementing them. You, you get you get it noticed, and that's partly what your role is, I suppose, being uh, a publicizer of these issues around the world. Well, when people are trapped behind closed borders, and this is where our main focus of work now is, people are off the radar screen. Um, they need, and they're often in either situations of acute persecution oppression and or war, conflict or post-conflict. Um, they need a voice. You don't hear their voices otherwise, but they also need a helping hand. And one of the things we are always, again, humbled and inspired by is the enormous resourcefulness, the resilience of people in these tough, tough situations. In Hartman, I work with local partners, and they are the heroes and heroines, and they are transformational for mm. their communities. Yeah, absolutely. Moving on then from Russia, what was the next hot spot that, that came to your attention? Well, coming into focus at this time was the uh, developing catastrophic, heartbreaking situation in Sudan. I'd originally worked in Sudan as a nurse in northern Kordofan, the north of Sudan, doing an immunization program, remote area desert work, with an organization called Emmanuel International. They're in Sudan, it's called Fellowship for African Relief. And so I knew a little bit about Sudan and remote area desert work. Then in 1989, the situation became infinitely worse when a militant Islamist regime, that's a kind of al-Qaeda ideology, took part by military coup and immediately declared Islamic military jihad against all who opposed it, which included many of the moderate Muslims, as well, of course, as the Christians and the traditional believers. And that war blew up. It was a war that went on from 89 to 2005, in which two million perished, four million were displaced, and hundreds and thousands of women and children taken as slaves. And every month, Khartoum would publish a list of airstrips open to the UN and big aid organisations and the forbidden areas. Then, of course, it carried out its military offensives in the forbidden areas, so no one could take aid to the victims, mm. tell the world what it was doing. I went 30 times to a whole range of those no-go areas right across South Sudan in the Nuba Mountains, in the east with the Bajra people in the desert. And it meant a lot to them that we went because we told the world what was happening to them. Now, when you say you, you went, you went to these places which were effectively off-limits. So how exactly did you go? This Was this sort of... You, you had to avoid the authorities, presumably, when you were making these kinds of trips. Yes, we went in illegally. It was the only way to get there. Um, and it depended on the destination. Most of the places we would fly to the forbidden airstrips. Mm. And we had brave pilots who... Um, Khartoum didn't love us doing it. I mean, we told the world what yeah. <laughs> didn't want the world to know. We took aid to people who didn't want to receive aid. So they said they, well, they gave me a prison sentence for illegal entry. So I said, well, stop declaring a no-go, and I won't have to come in illegally. <laughs> but while you do, I'll have to. And then they said they would shoot our planes out of the sky. So we had brave pilots who used to give a false 
destination, and we'd fly around in the kind of circus of legit aid planes. Right. At the last minute, snuck down to forbidden airstrip. The plane couldn't stop on the ground. It would certainly be bombed. So we got out very quickly. The plane would take off. We'd had the privilege of spending several days with the local people where we were with them. We could give them what aid we could. We could get their stories, get the evidence. And then, I must admit, I was a little bit relieved to see the plane come and take me back to my comfort zone and the things we take for granted. Thank goodness me. It's extraordinary stuff. Were there any close calls in those kinds of um, flying in under the radar type of operations? Uh, Yeah, quite a few. I mean, anything anything that stands out as a sort of memory of, of when you thought, gosh, this might be it, it might be over for Caroline Cox? Well, at one time we were strongly advised not to go because we were told that uh, the Egyptian army was at that stage alongside the Sudanese and they had um, radar tracking missiles and surface to air missiles and radar tracking techniques, surface to air missiles and MiGs. And I was told, well, either you get shot out of the sky or you get buzzed down or you'd be bombed on the ground, so don't go. But we had to go. We had a message at that time from far up in Bar Gazelle that um, the local tribal chief had 300 slaves waiting to be rescued. He said, I've already given them one bull. I've run out of food. Well, you can't not go. So you went. You survived, obviously. Mm. Um, I mean, you've probably, though, been within the sound of gunfire and and that sort of thing plenty of times. Um, What in that situation do you do? Do you just get on with it? Do you say a quick prayer? What's, What's the sort of... What's happening in your mind? Well, you certainly say your prayers. And then you're just so, again, humble being with the people. And when you're with Christians, I'm always so humbled with the persecuted church, whether it's in Sudan or later in Armenia, Nagorno-Karabakh or Nigeria, Indonesia, other places we work. They remain so full of joy. Mm. You know, in those uh, villages in South Sudan, when you could see villages blazing all the way around and government of Sudan armed forces were quite nearby... Um, you'd, stay, you'd go to sleep in your tent. There were no buildings, so you'd have to take your own tent. But people would be singing. People would be praising God, even in the midst of those fires of persecution. So when you're with them, you're just, well, you've just got to... Yeah. Uh, uh, well, you just have to gain from their courage and feel humbled and inspired and try to be worthy of them. It was at this time that you were working as well. You were president of... Christian Solidarity Worldwide and and you had this scheme going whereby you were trying to buy slaves, buy people out of the slave trade if you like. Tell me how that all began, what inspired you to take that particular course of action? I'm always grateful to CSW because it made this slave redemption possible. It was um, was partly CSI from Switzerland and then CSW UK and um, it happened because when the slave raids would take place, they were terrifying. Much about 2,000 government of Sudan soldiers, the Mujahideen, the jihad warriors, the Murahaleen, the local tribesmen had been round up armed, given Kalashnikovs and fast horses, would come through these areas and they'd kill the men, most of the men, they'd just take hundreds, thousands of women and children into slavery. But there were peaceable Arab traders from the north who were friends of the African peoples, predominantly Dinka peoples, and they used to come south to graze their cattle and trade, and they grieved at what this was happening to their friends. So when they went back, they would do everything they could to find, buy back and bring back the women and children who'd been enslaved, and that was how we were able to pay for the release of hundreds and hundreds of women and children and hear their stories, and their stories 
tear your heart apart. Mm. This was real, raw, rampant ideological slavery. And uh, I've written a book on slavery, and it'll be, I think, very significant as we talk about the mm. forthcoming bill on slavery. Yeah, yeah. The heart of the book are the stories of people into whose eyes I've looked who've been today's slaves, many of them from Sudan. And they speak, for those we can't hear, because they are still enslaved today. But those stories really tear your heart out. I'd like to continue talking about that as we uh, go into the next section of today's programme. I'm talking to Baroness Caroline Cox of Queensbury. She's often described as a voice for the voiceless. I'll be back with more from Caroline Cox in a moment's time. Premier Christianity magazine in this month's issue. What a beautiful name it is. You've heard the songs. Now discover the story of the church that changed the way the world worships. In the latest edition of Premier Christianity magazine, we go behind the scenes of Hillsong. In the UK alone, they've grown from 110 members to 14,000. But not everybody is a fan. We chart the rise of this megachurch and put tough questions to their leaders. Plus news, reviews and much more. For your free copy, visit premierchristianity.com forward slash free sample. Profile. You're listening to Premier Christian Radio. Welcome back to the programme. I'm Justin Briley, and today on the profile, I'm joined by Baroness Caroline Cox of Queensbury, often described as a voice for the voiceless. She's been working tirelessly on behalf of persecuted Christians and other people all around the world. And, of course, here in the UK, in fact, she's currently in the process of tabling uh, a bill, a private member's bill in the House of Lords. It's an equality bill to do with Sharia law and the rights of women. So we're going to be talking about that as we carry on in today's programme. But before we get to those sorts of issues that bring us right up to the present day, Caroline, we've been talking about the work you were doing in South Sudan in the mid-90s. You were going there to essentially rescue slaves, people in the slave trade, Um, Are there any particular stories that come to mind when you recall those very interesting days in the mid-90s? Well, they were all shocking, heartbreaking stories. You don't think slavery is history. (laughs) No way. Just sit with me for a moment under a tamarind tree in South Sudan when a whole lot of women and children have just been brought back into freedom and talk to little Deng. Little Deng is aged about seven. He's looking very sad because he's just realised... When he was, um, he's just come back with one of the slave traders, and he's just learnt that in the raid when he was captured two years previously, both his parents had been killed. So he's just discovered he's an orphan. So he's crying. But towards the end of my time at Little Deng, I get a wistful little smile. He said, Well, at least I'm home again now. I call my own name Deng, which is the Dinka word for rain, and rain is precious, means someone to be cherished. He said, I no longer call it a beat or the Arabic for slave. Mm. And it's my passion that every child should have an identity to be cherished. None should be a slave in the world today. But that at least 27, at least 27 million men, women and children suffering some kind of slavery in the world today. And Deng is just one story. In the book I recently brought out about slavery, there are three chapters. And they are the stories of people into whose eyes I've looked who've been today's slaves. Mm. And they speak for those we can't hear. And just one other little vignette from uh, northern Uganda. 
There, the horrendous Lord's Resistance Army uh, abducted at least 25,000 children, young people, forced them to become child soldiers, brutalised them, tortured them. And I'll never forget talking to one young girl who'd been with the LRA, escaped, and she described how one morning she was forced to kill another child with a panker knife and drink his blood. She said, I still wake up and have nightmares about that terrible morning. I had to kill him and drink his blood. What could I do? It was him or me. This is slavery today. Mm. It's the stories that we don't tend to hear about all Mm -hmm. that often. But this is the lived reality of many people around the world. And and you're obviously someone who wants to put yourself into that reality. Just going back to the when you were doing this issue with the slavery in South Sudan, the money you had raised from churches in the UK, you were using effectively to buy slaves out of the slave Mm. trade. But not everyone agreed that was the best way to go about things. Mm. There were some anti-slavery groups who said, well, as much as we appreciate the the heart you have in doing that, that is only kind of perpetuating, if you like, the slave trade in itself. It's not tackling the root problem. So what, what was your response to those criticisms? They should have been there and judged for themselves. It's easier to criticise from a distance. If they'd been there, they would have understood that that redemption was not encouraging the slave trade. This wasn't an economic venture. This was ideology. This was war. Um, the traders themselves told us how they were in, well, how they were in the areas in those parts of Sudan where the slave raids took place, the so-called north, and how the Islamic leaders would come down to those areas and say, this is jihad, you have an obligation to go and fight, kill the Christians, take slaves, we can't pay you, Mm -hmm. but you can keep the bounty of war, um, and that includes the human bounty, um, as your rewards. And you have a duty to do this. This was ideology. No amount of rescuing those slaves was going to make it happen more and the other thing they criticised us for was, um, well, how do you know they're not going to get caught again? Well, the answer to that is you don't refuse to help the victim of a road accident because they may get knocked down again. Mm. But also we met many of the people who had been rescued um, years later. They were still free. Yeah. And I would like to say to those people who criticised us, would you sit there and refuse to pay the price for freedom for people you could free. Mm. As a Christian, I have a moral imperative to set the captives free. And their arguments were falsely based on misunderstanding. Yeah. As a Christian as well, though, how did you cope with the level of suffering you saw in those environments? Um, you describe in, I've seen in, in articles and in your book, um, awful, awful scenes where you've walked through camps that have been massacred effectively uh, women, children, men literally lying with the vultures picking over them where is God for you in all of that suffering? Well that is a huge challenge my faith and I remember in South Sudan once after one of the worst visits when we began in an area where a market had been attacked by the Islamist soldiers uh, at dawn and there were corpses everywhere and rotting in the river and At the end of that visit, I just sat outside my tent and my faith was really challenged. And it's the usual old challenge. How can a God of love who is omnipotent allow these things to happen to the innocent? And as I was thinking that and wrestling with my faith, incongruously, the thought came to me about Christmas. There was I'm 40 degrees plus in South (laughs) Sudan, Christmas back in the UK. But the thought occurred to me that maybe one reason why we perhaps are not very good in comfortable Christianity, 
in coming to terms with this horrendous suffering is reflected in the way we may keep Christmas. Of course we celebrate Christmas, Christ incarnate, love incarnate, a wonderful thing to celebrate. But if we go on, Boxing Day, parties, New Year's Day, and we forget that while Mary was celebrating the birth of Jesus, all those other mothers were weeping because Herod had killed their sons. If we don't put that fact into the equation of Christmas, then maybe it's not surprising we don't have a theology that can cope with the modern-day Herods, mm. who will still slaughter the innocents. And then my thoughts went on to the end of Jesus' life, when he was dying on the cross, and Mary, his mother, could only stand at the foot and be there in anguish as a sword pierced her own heart. And it occurred to me that maybe one of the callings of a Christian may be to be willing to attend whatever Calvaries our Lord may call us to attend, but to be there in faith, in love, in profound respect and grief, as Mary was. And those Calvaries don't have to be in South Sudan. I mean, they can be anywhere in the world, or they can be in hospice down the road. But to at least put that factor of suffering into the equation of our Christian faith. Yeah. And what about those, the faith of those that y- who are suffering in those situations? Do, do you find that they are angry with God at their situation? Do you find that their faith somehow sustains them even in the midst of terrible suffering? It's one of the humbling things of being with the persecuted church is how you don't find hate, you don't find revenge, whether it's in the Armenian enclave of Nagorno-Karabakh, Armenia, the first nation to become Christian, a little bit of ancient Armenia, Stalin stuck inside Azerbaijan, and then with the dissolution of the Soviet Union, Azerbaijan began attempted ethnic cleansing of the Armenians from that little land. Just 150,000 Armenians against 7 million strong Azerbaijan. I used to count 400 grad missiles a day pounding in on the little capital city. I witnessed a village where Azerbaijan had overrun at dawn and they'd sawn off the heads of villagers and burnt others alive and the buildings were smouldering when we got there. I mean, suffering there, you can't compare, but on a par with the kind of suffering in South Sudan. Mm. And I was there on the day when the bishop... Uh, who was with his people throughout that war, um, his house got a direct hit, and his life was saved by prayer. It was winter, there was no electricity, minus 20, 30 degrees, freezing cold, but every morning he'd get up when the bombing started and pray. And I visited him in his house the day his house got a direct hit, and I said, Bishop, no one knows what's happening here. Your people are suffering so much. Do you have a message for the world? He said, yes. We praise God that after 70 years of Soviet communism, we are free to pray again. It's true we're having to pray in cellars and basements because of the constant bombing on the field of battle, where we're having to defend our homes and our families against those who would destroy them. But we praise God for the freedom to pray. And we also remember that it's not only those who commit aggression, who commit sin, but those who stand by seeing and knowing and to do nothing to try to help or to avert it. And then his message, but we have a God of love. If we want God's victory, whatever forces of evil are unleashed against us in this war or anywhere in the world, we must never hate, we must always love, we must always love. And we get that message wherever we go in the persecuted church. Which is a in a sense, a miracle in itself, isn't it? A miracle of God's grace that people in those situations can have that outlook. 
It's a miracle of grace. But I remember when we were in northern India, uh, in Orissa, Christians were attacked in Orissa a few years back, and Hart, my small NGO, now Humanitarian Aid Relief Trust, was the first to get there. And I remember I was walking through yet another destroyed church, and I just thought, I've done this too often. I stumbled over the burnt bricks, the splintered glass, the burnt cross or crucifix, whatever the kind of church, the burnt Bible, the crushed nativity figures. And the phrase came to me, the very stones will cry out. And I thought, oh, Caroline Cox, another book has just been born. <laughs> it's a book that had to be written. But the message of the book is, because I've walked through these destroyed churches in Sudan, in Nagorno-Karabakh, in Indonesia, in India, in Nigeria. And I, wherever you go, yes, the churches are destroyed. But within hours, Christians will be back in the ruins worshipping. Given that many of the areas that you're involved in, the persecution is coming from Islamist factions and so on. What view do you take on Islam? Do you see it as a threat? Is it simply a particular form of Islam that you are concerned with? Well, the vast majority of the world's Muslims are peaceable, very hospitable people. And I've lived and worked with many of them. And so Muslims, as I say, the vast majority are people, many I count my friends. I am concerned about the growth of what I would say is political, strategic, militaristic Islamism. And that is responsible for increasing persecution in many parts of the world. And particularly we see it around the Crescent in the Middle East. saw it in Egypt. We see it in Nigeria now with Boko Haram particularly. But um, that kind of militant, aggressive, political, strategic Islam is... I think, a cause for great concern abroad and in our own country. I think it is a great threat to our Nigeria. Over the last two decades, thousands of Christians have been killed by militant Islam, hundreds of churches destroyed, escalated recently with the very avowed, aggressive Boko Haram, which has determined to drive all Christians out of northern Nigeria. I was in Kano not so very long ago uh, when three churches had been uh, just hit one morning, one Sunday morning, 60 Christians killed. Um, one of our partners from Hart in Dross uh, in Plateau State is Archbishop Ben Quashi. And just a little vignette from him and a message from him to bring us back to the UK. But so many of his churches have been destroyed, his people killed. And um, his lovely wife, Gloria. Now, Gloria is one of my heroines. Whenever a village is attacked, you and the Mother's Union will get together, rackety-packety old buses. They'll drive down with clothes and cooking pots, epicenter of violence, be with their people. Some years ago, I had a terrible email message. Um, militants had gone to a house to kill Archbishop Ben. He wasn't there. They beat up his younger son. My beloved Gloria, my nickname for her is Gloria in Excelsis. They took her. They did terrible things to her with broken glass and splintered wood. They trampled on her so hard that she was blinded. Her sight's been restored since with surgery in the States. Well, of course, the bishop immediately went home. He sent an email the next day saying, I've been home for 24 hours. I've had time to sit and pray and think, and I had a laugh. Because I thought that when I was a little boy, my mum used to pray so hard I grew up to be a Christian. And I know when churches in Nigeria get into trouble, churches in the West pray for us. It's good for churches in the West to have to pray, so maybe you should get into trouble more often. Then he turned serious. I've just come from the hospital. My beloved Gloria was able to sit to receive Holy Communion. And we had a wonderful time of prayer and worship together. 
We praised God. We've been found worthy to suffer for his kingdom. And we just pray that all of Gloria's pain, anguish, and humiliation will be used for his kingdom, his glory, and the strengthening of his church. To praise God for that suffering, that makes me feel microscopic in my spiritual stature. But then he gave us a challenge. We were there last year. We visit quite regularly. And he said, if we here in Nigeria have a faith worth living for, it is a faith worth dying for. And of course, many of them have. And then his challenge. But don't you, that's us in the West, compromise the faith we are living and dying for. I'm afraid we are compromising that faith. That's a humbling message. How do you feel we are in the West compromising that faith that they are dying for? Well, we've got such a, a crisis of confidence in Christianity. There's so much in the way of policy and law that's been going through that can be seen in many ways as a compromise of our fundamental traditional Christian values. But my particular concern and one of my current initiatives is the whole growth in this country of Sharia councils and Sharia courts. Now, that is worrying for two reasons. One is that in the administration of so much of Sharia law, there is an inherently discriminatory policy towards women. Uh, there is a total asymmetry with regard to divorce, for example. A man can divorce a wife very, very easily, maybe just by saying, I divorce you three times. Women have to go through many more uh, procedures and often have to pay in order to get a religious divorce, and devout women will want a, a religious divorce. Um, and there is a lot of abuse, a lot of violence, a lot of huge community pressure on women not to seek help outside their communities. And women are really suffering in this land. One, And the stories I've heard from Muslim women in this country, suffering from domestic violence, huge community pressure, make our suffragettes turn in their graves. But the other aspect to this system that has developed is it's a fundamental challenge to the fundamental principle of democracy of one law for all. Mm. We should not have a quasi-parallel legal system operating alongside our own democratic legal system. So I do have a private member's bill, which is trying to address these issues. We had a second reading the first time I submitted it in October of um, 2012, and there was huge support from all parts of the House and from other faith communities as well. Mm. Lord Singer Wimbledon is mm. very, very supportive. Um, Lord Carlyle, famous human rights lawyer, huge support from all parts of the House. Um, but above all, it has support from Muslim women's organisations who are really worried about the suffering of women in this country, which we should not be countenancing. Is there, though, on the other hand, any sense of sensitivity on the part of government when it comes to dealing with these type of issues around Islam? Do you sense that there's any sense of, for want of a better word, political correctness that may be uh, stimming this kind of a bill going forward? I think has been part of our culture and part maybe of our professional and policy-making levels of culture for too long. Um, there's a very powerful book, a true story, called The Imam's Daughter. The pseudonym is Hannah Shah. And she describes, for example, the hell she went through as a little girl when she was tortured, abused, raped by her father uh, in the cellar of their home. On one occasion, in desperation, she sought the help of a social worker at her school when she came home to her horror, just a little girl, as she found her case had been referred to a culturally compliant social worker. So there was a social worker 
of that faith tradition, sitting on the sofa joking with her father, and she knew she was just going to be in for worse in future. We find this reflected also in issues related to female genital mutilation. Um, I supported the very first bill to outlaw that in this country way back in 1985. Now, so many years later, um, I had a question about this in the Lords, there's not been a single prosecution. Mm. There's estimated there are at least 60,000 girls and women living with that horrendous affliction in this country and many more imminent. When mm. one talks to people who work in this field, they say there's been what I would say is a hypersensitivity amongst professionals uh, about offending uh, local customs, local culture, local practices, local communities. My bottom line argument is we should never let culture override the law of the land. You've never been too concerned in that sense about stepping on people's feelings or, or, or whatever, because you obviously see there's a bigger picture at hand here. Um, I mean, obviously, many people will know that you were part of a, a few people who invited uh, the Dutch uh, politician Gert Wilders over when there was that whole brouhaha about him being banned from coming mm. to show this film Fitna, which obviously uh, was uh, enraging many Muslim groups. Now, do you do you regret that invitation? Do you stand by that invitation to Gert Wilders? Stand by it completely. He was a democratically elected member of the European Parliament. He had every right to come and speak. I don't have to agree with him, but I can't even disagree with him. He was not allowed to come. Sure. There were certain things he stood for which I did disagree with completely. Because he's, he's a far-right politician, it's fair to say. Uh, absolutely. But he has a right. He's a democratically elected member of the Dutch Parliament. And he had a right to come and put his views. And unless he put his views, we can't engage with those views. We can't analyse them. We can't see some of what he's saying may be significantly true. Uh, some I would want to disagree with. But he deserved that dialogue. For me, and it goes right back to the early days at the Polytechnic of North London, freedom of speech is a fundamental freedom. Even when it might mean demonstrations, um, violence, potentially? We have laws against that. We have laws to protect this country against incitement to hatred. So the laws are in place. But a fundamental freedom must be a freedom, maybe, to offend. A few years back, there was very significant legislation going through Parliament which would have been, and fundamental freedoms of speech were at stake here, would have made it a criminal offence to say anything offensive, or not offensive, but say anything critical about Islam, to say anything positive about another faith, because that might give offence, or to make jokes. Now, those dangers were discerned in the House of Lords, or Lester of Herne Hill led a very strong lobby in the House of Lords to protect those fundamental freedoms. And I remember briefing sessions we had, we had amongst other people, Rowan Atkinson. But one of the really powerful statements and policies which were emphasised were, you must have the freedom to joke. You must have the freedom, even if jokes can actually give offence. We have laws against excessive incitement. But you've got to have freedom of speech. And I'm happy to say those laws were passed in the House of Lords, in those amendments. When they went to the House of Commons under the Tony Blair administration, um, there was a determination to remove the Lord's amendments. We got a lot of support from the black churches on that occasion, on on all the stages of that bill. And they went and lobbied members of the House of Commons on the day when the House of Commons were devoted to remove the Lord's freedom amendments. They changed the minds of a number of Labour MPs when the critical votes to remove those freedom amendments came in the House of Commons. The first was lost by 10. Then Britain's freedom really hung by a thread. The second vote to remove the freedom amendments was lost by one vote. 
Now, that is a fundamental freedom of speech, and that is a bottom line of democracy. Yeah, absolutely. Where currently should Christians be praying for, thinking about encouraging partners who are over there with their gifts and, and, and their practical action? Where for you is your heart just at this time? Well, two quick answers. One is a part of my heart is in Burma. Been in Burma many times with the ethnic tribal groups, the ethnic national groups, such as the Kachin, who are Christian, the Rohingya Muslim people, and the Shan, who are Buddhist. They're all suffering at the moment horrendously, and their stories are not being told because everyone is so keen to get in there and invest. And my pressure must be there. The British government must keep a balance between investment and encouraging the democratic reforms that have taken place, but not allow the horrendous violations of human rights that are occurring for the ethnic national groups uh, to get off the agenda. But my main and overriding priority must be Sudan and South Sudan. Mm. As in South Sudan so many times, it has since been afflicted by an eruption of conflict. Um, But the Republic of Sudan to the north, the old North, which is now the Independent Republic of Sudan, is probably one of the world's worst and most critical places today. The president is the same president, al-Bashir, indicted by the International Criminal Court, who is responsible for all the deaths in the war against the South, the enslavement, Darfur, and he's now expressed his determination to turn the Republic of Sudan into a unified Arabic Islamic nation. He's carrying out ethnic and religious cleansing of the peoples in Bunar State and the Nuba Mountains. There's constant air of bombardment. Half a million are hiding in caves with snakes in riverbanks, dying of starvation. Quarter million fled into troubled South Sudan. And we've been told that since the problems in South Sudan have taken the world's attention, he's now tripled his air bombardment of those civilians in Nuba Mountains mm. and in um, Bunar. We were across the border there uh, last year. It is horrendous. It's off the radar screen, and please, it needs all the prayer. It is really systematic. I would use the word genocide. Yeah. If you want to look for yourself and and see what work uh, Baroness Caroline Cox's organisation Heart is doing in these kinds of areas, then do visit their website. Just search for Heart online. Uh, It stands for Humanitarian Aid Relief Trust, and you can find out more uh, all about that. Um, Just as we finish up, Caroline, so many situations needing our concern, our prayers. Um, What gives you ultimately hope in a God who can perform miracles and in a gospel which is about not just the God who was crucified, but the God who raised again from from death? My faith, which is often challenged, is underpinned by the radiant faith, the miracles of grace we encounter amongst our partners on those front lines of faith and freedom. They're the ones who are suffering. They're the ones who are undergoing persecution, and their faith is radiant. And when they worship, they worship with more joy than in many a comfortable church here in our comfortable Christian West. Their faith inspires and maintains mine.
Thanks so much for joining us on this podcast-only edition of the show this week. This is The Profile, where we sit down with a different person every week to find out more about their life, their faith, their testimony. And if you're enjoying the show, we'd really appreciate it if you'd give us a rating and give us a review. It just takes a few seconds, but it really helps other people discover the show. The other way, of course, you can help is just by sharing this on social media or perhaps emailing a link to those friends or family who you think, oh, they'd enjoy that interview. Help us spread the love. We'd appreciate it a lot. And finally, just before we go, time to remind you that that special subscription offer on Premier Christianity magazine is still available you can get 12 issues of the UK's leading Christian magazine for less than £20 this offer is not going to last too much longer at all so you really need to take advantage of it now if you go to our website and take out a subscription we'll also put you into a prize draw to win £200 worth of new Christian books all of the details are at premierchristianity.com forward slash subscribe That's all we've got time for for now, but do join us again. We'll be right back, same time, same place, next week with another great interview for you. We'll see you next time.